So good morning and welcome to this Inside Precision Medicine podcast supported by Illumina. My name is Damien Doherty and I'm the Editor-in-Chief of Inside Precision Medicine. And I shall be talking today to Dr. Julio Monterey, a Stanford-trained board-certified psychiatrist and neuroscientist who specializes in diagnosing and treating complex cases. Now, today we're going to dive into how uh, pharmacogenomics, or PGX as we may be referring to it as, uh, how that testing is used in, in Dr. Monterey's practice and the benefits he has seen in recent years in implementing PGX screening to guide and improve patient care. So just a little bit of context. Historically, prescribing drugs has been led ostensibly by trial and error approach. ADRs, advanced drug reactions and general suboptimal efficacy contribute to very poor levels of adherence. Uh, we need to do a lot better for our patients. And this is where PGX offers some hope. Pharmacogenetics is a growing field in precision medicine and essentially speaks to how genetic variation can influence an individual's response to a drug. Uh, pharmacogenetic testing is a tool that is helping clinicians like Julio make better decisions on prescribing the most optimal drug for his patients. And it is having a transformational result in many subspecialties, but today we'll be focusing on the field of psychiatry. Now, we're obviously a long way from ubiquitous implementation, but physicians like Julio are leading the charge in implementing these valuable tools in the clinic and indeed advocating for wider scale adoption. So welcome, Julio. It's a real pleasure to get the opportunity to chat with you today. Um, and I wonder whether if we could maybe start with a brief summary of your journey uh, to becoming a psychiatrist. Was this a field that you had been focused on for a while or were there a few twists and turns along the way, which is often the case in medicine? I know a lot of medical students start off with one thing in mind and by the time they finished, it's something completely different. So I just wanted to, to see whether you could talk us through that, perhaps. Yes. Uh, thank you, Damien, for having me. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, psychiatry was somewhat of a last minute decision for me. I was rotating through all the different specialties in medicine and uh, found myself really attracted to almost every field I came across. And so I had a really hard time choosing a specialty. And eventually I found myself in rheumatology grand rounds out of, out of everything. And they actually had a patient there, uh, which is not typical but it was a very rare case. And so they invited the patient and uh, the patient was talking about his experience of the rheumatologic illness he had. And the whole time, what attracted me was how he would say he knew when he was going to have a flare up of the condition, because just a few, a few days prior, he would have depressive symptoms completely out of nowhere. He couldn't explain it. He was shocked himself. And I just found myself sitting there thinking about the whole mind-body connection, body-to-mind connection. And that I said, you know what, that's where my mind always goes to. So I think I just have to go into psychiatry. Yeah, so that was your sort of epiphanous moment. That's when you knew. Yes. Calling. Okay, that's that's fantastic. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about your current work. I mean, you're, you're based out in California, correct? Right. Yes, okay. Um, and really give us a sense of um, how you treat and how you operate. I know you, you operate using a sort of a hybrid model. I know COVID has probably changed the way a lot of us work now, but maybe you can give us a little bit of in insight into the clinic and you know what the average week would look like for you, perhaps. 
Yeah, so I'm currently in private practice and it is a hybrid model. So uh, some of the patients are seen in person, some are seen virtually. Um, they will come into the office whenever an in-person appointment is necessary. And certainly this model was spearheaded um, from COVID um, and the need for uh, telemedicine services. Um, but I found some very you know, interesting benefits to this. Number one, it does improve the access for patients. Sometimes it's difficult to get yourself to a clinic, especially in a big metropolitan area, just traffic and uh, you know life uh, duties. And um, additionally, uh, I, I see I do see a lot of uh, teens uh, and, and children, and it's been very interesting to see the home environment. That's something I was never able to see before, you know, with when all my my visits were in person. So uh, currently, it's about I would say sixty percent virtual, forty percent in person. Um, kind of varies throughout the week. Mm -hmm. Would you say there's much, just, just sort of adding to that, would you find that patients are less or more inhibited or uninhibited depending on the virtual or the, uh, the in-person, or do you feel that there's no, there's no difference there at all? Do you feel people would be more willing to, to tell you more over Zoom? Or do you feel there's more, there's a more of a, um, you know, a sense of nervousness or anxiety when you're physically in with you? Or, or do you think there's no difference between the two? Yeah, that's a great question, because I think in the field, we were worried that telemedicine was going to decrease the quality of the care. But mm. what I have found is that uh, it just depends on the patient and it depends on where they're at in their process. So I've had patients where they wanted to be seen virtually because it was less intimidating. Mm. And they finally got to the point where they've had you know, the courage or the interest of coming in in person to mm. speak about very very deep things like, for example, trauma. So in those particular cases, I feel like telemedicine allowed these individuals to get to a point to be able to actually get the help. Yes. So it's been it's been a great experience. Um, and I do think that it just depends on the person. And even within the person, it depends on where they're at. Yeah, I hear you. Fair enough. But you, you see that split pretty much staying um, static. You, you've no desire to increase the in-person you're, you're just for now it's working that split and that works well for, for the work that you're doing yes i think that split that hybrid model of in-person and telemedicine works really well because it just gives patients options and i'm very patient-centered patient-focused and um whenever there's more options for them i think that's best okay good man um so so yeah, give give us an idea then. So you you you're split. You said that you're split between adults and um, pediatric. Is, is that a similar split as well? Would that be a sixty forty, or is is that just dependent on any given week, month? I mean, it can obviously fluctuate. But are you you sort of equally um, dealing with both both different adult and pediatric cases in any given week? Yes, I would say most of my patients are actually going to be on the pediatric side. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of uh, of need for pediatric psychiatrists and um that would be the bulk of my of my practice okay and have you seen that spike since covid because i know there's been obviously there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of evidence to, we, we certainly know here from the united kingdom that uh, childhood mental disorders have risen exponentially in the last two or three years because of covid so has that been a a, a trend you've seen as well Definitely a spike in the pediatric cases, and they come in all types of ways, um, from eating disorders to just poor academic performance. Turns out to have been ADHD, for example, or a mood disorder like 
depression, anxiety, just the new uh, teaching methods of being virtual on camera just has precipitated so many kind of underlying conditions or mood disorders uh, or staying at home the whole time, depending on the home environment has led to conditions that I end up seeing in the clinic. So certainly a spike, but also a spike in adults as well. Yes. Well, I mean, you, you touched upon that with ADHD. I mean, it's, that's becoming even more prevalent too, of a lot of these, the, the symptomology, or all of these things that people have lived with for 30, 40 years now, you know, certainly people in my, my age bracket. And now it seems to be a, a common discussion when I'm out and about a lot of people, my age, I mean, I'm 50 now going, you know, I have a funny feeling I've got ADHD. And on one hand, there's the self-diagnosis going on and you know that we can we know we know how that can be it can get we can get that wrong and we can always want you know this also this sense of everybody wants to have a label to some degree but but I do see a lot of that I see a lot of my adult friends now going to get tested and there seems to be a lot of these people that just you know just weren't tested years ago or were able to hide symptoms or just carry on their ordinary working day lives thinking well I've got this or I've got that but I'm just going to deal with it so I'm assuming you've seen that as well in the adult population Absolutely. When, you know, the job goes from being in the office, for example, to being at home, just sitting in front of your screen, it's so easy to get distracted. And sometimes those symptoms that were very mild of ADHD start interfering with the person's ability to get work done. And so they end up coming in for a visit. So I certainly have seen that. And ADHD is very prevalent. It's about 10% of the population. So um, it's, very likely that this was not being tested, not being detected uh, many you know years ago, and it's showing up now. Yeah, yeah, okay. Um, so if we put PGX testing to one side, maybe you could walk us through like a, a traditional patient journey scenario from the time that they walk into your clinic or of course attend a Zoom call. And you could explain the steps you go through in order to build that picture of this patient that will help you come to the most accurate evidence-based diagnosis. Yeah, so the very first step when a patient comes to, to my practice um, is determining what is their goal. There has mm -hmm. to be a reason as to why they're there. And I always tell them, look, I, I'm going to offer you guidance to get you to your goal. Uh, they are the boss. And so I'm here to offer my expertise and what I think is one of the better ways that they can get to that goal. But they, that has to be defined. Sometimes, and not infrequently, Will that goal not be clearly defined? And so we spend time, you know, understanding what the person has been going through, what their life looks like, what are some just general life goals? And yes. then we start clarifying, okay, what might be some targets of treatment? You know, what is it that we're actually working towards? Generally speaking, I like to identify targets that are measurable or find a way to make them measurable. And that's to determine whether whatever treatment plan we, we put in place is actually working or not so that we, we can measure that. That's the first step. And then the second step will be what I would call uh, the empathy phase, just making sure that the person feels understood, that I understand what they've, that what they've gone through, um, that helps solidify what the targets are for treatment. And then it's measurement. So getting baseline measurements of mood, baseline measurements in terms of just general labs, general uh, medical condition, um, and from there, we generate the treatment plan and, and execute that for, you know, however long is indicated for the condition. Right. Okay. Um, and obviously, that's where 
differential diagnosis is incredibly important, isn't it? And obviously, you know, doing lab tests to, to rule out certain indications, that, that plays an important role at that point, I assume. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, you want to build a differential, you want to think outside the box, you know, even if something seems like clear cut uh, bread and butter depression or anxiety, well, there's different subtypes. Uh, what, what, what may be going on? Um, is there an underlying medical condition that is either causing it or or, or exacerbating it? Uh, some underlying medical condition that can get in the way of the efficacy of a psychiatric medication or or psychotherapy. So these are things that need to be checked and, and ruled out. Okay. And as much as tracking their own medical history, how much do you tap into the familial history as well? Is that something that you discuss with the patient, you know, mother, father, maybe other members of the family? That's a, that's, a, that's probably a quick fire way of building a sort of a, a general picture at that point, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. So family history is very important. And I, too, I take two types of family histories, the uh, what I call the family medical history and the family psychiatric history. So in the medical side, I'm checking for things like heart disease at early age, uh, chronic me uh, medical illnesses like hypertension, diabetes, uh, thyroid problems, liver, kidney diseases that may be hereditary. Um, and these are all will affect how I think about what are the medication options, the medication dosages that I may consider or avoid. Then there's the psychiatric part, the family psychiatric history. And there I'm looking for um, what conditions may run in the family. What you know, is there depression, anxiety? Is there mm -hmm. severe, severe mental illness? And also importantly, um, is there a history in the family of suicide? Because yeah. these are risk factors that are very important in the assessment. Right. Okay. Fantastic. Um, so how did you first come to adopt PGX? Um, I mean, go back to this epiphanous moment, of course, why you got into psychiatry, but did you have a similar epiphanous moment um, when you realized that this would have a, a transformational impact on your clinical decision-making? So maybe you could talk us through what that moment was when you realized, because I'm assuming this isn't something you you were trained at a medical college, you know, you know, you're of a vintage, you know, you're younger than me, but I know you're a vintage where it just clearly wasn't there. And arguably, you know, it still isn't in the curriculum. Let's, let's be honest. Um, so, so when was that moment that you realized that this was something that you had to pay attention to? You know, it was a little bit of an insidious onset. Um, as you mentioned, it wasn't really something that we were trained in, in medical school or residency, obviously, uh, there are genetic conditions that we learn about, and there are some genetic tests that that mm -hmm. that uh, we we learn and and use, like in prenatal testing and and all of that. But using PGX in psychiatry uh, is not something that was really a focus. If anything, lots of conversations were had about how the pharmacodynamic side of things um, was. Uh, really uh, said to be meaningless. So, um, so that was the general impression. So I wasn't really jumping to get my hands on PGX testing uh, for my patients. And I, it really started with patients coming to me asking for PGX testing and telling me, you know, my friends are getting this and uh, mm -hmm. it's helped them choose a medication and they feel much better. You know, can, can we try that? Um, so I said, all right, let, let's, let's give it a go. Um, and from my experience with patients going about it that way, it's just completely transformed the way I thought about PGX testing. It's, 
um, not only the the biology and the medical part of it, but also the rapport with the patient, um, you know, building a treatment plan with them um, in line with 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 what they want. Mm -hmm. um, it's it, that that's how it started. And from one good experience to another, mm -hmm. I just started to generally adopt it. And of course, adopting it meant, I assume, researching it just in your spare time. I mean, you didn't you didn't go and you didn't do a, a night class. You didn't go and do extra studies. You just literally had to absorb as much information as you could to fully understand the implications of what this meant. Um, and then, of course, the minefield of I mean, the, the technology is in abundance now. But of course, you know, the whole area of interpretation, the whole area of, you know, which providers do I use? And, and, and maybe talk to a bit about that, because would would a patient come and suggest a particular um, PGX assay or would you how, how do you work on that side do you, you work off a probably a, a comprehensive panel to some degree do you when, when looking at that yeah so I mean you know I go with whatever the patient is interested in as long as the quality of the assay is there so I'll check mm -hmm. for that um, but I'm pretty flexible in terms of what particular assay is going to be used okay. um, you know, I, I did do a lot of my own research. Uh, that's the one of the beauties of being in my private practice is that I can just allocate time for my own further, you know, education. Um, and my background in research really kind of allowed me to understand these papers, which can be fairly complex sometimes. Mm -hmm. And um, from from that research, you know, I just started really thinking about, well, what's my opinion on these tests? Like, wh where do I stand? And where do I stand in terms of... Um, providing this option to patients because lots of providers don't even bring it up as an option. So, uh, you know, it, it was from that reading that I decided, you know, it certainly should be an option. And mm. now that I've educated myself on, on the topic, I can speak intelligently about it to my patients and, and actually kind of guide them to making that decision as to whether or not to, to go with this testing. Mm. Okay. Right. Um, so what do you think? I mean, I'm assuming there is a degree of peer-to-peer -peer education. Some of your fellow psychiatrists, I'm sure there's a, as many that are using it, aren't using it. I know wider adoption still needs to be worked on. But um, can you can you sort of talk about what you see as the sort of perceived barriers to, to, to further implementation? What do you think it is? Is it just an educational component or do you think it's a trust component or... Do you think it's just um, like you, if, if you're not aware that it's there and you're not really sure how to use it, there'll just be a general sense of, well, you know, I'll, I'll just stick to what I know. It, it's the fear of adoption, maybe. What, what, what do you see as the, the bigger challenges there to, to barriers to implementation? You know, um, it's multifactorial. Mm -hmm. um, however, I'll say that I was recently at a conference where we were talking about PGX and um, I walked away with the sense that, you know, the, the take home point from that presentation was that it wasn't that useful. Yet when you look at the slides, it'll mention the effect size actually, you know, being you know, mild, but, but, but present the uh, PGX testing did have a significant effect on how quickly a person was going to respond to medication or remit in terms of their symptoms. And yet that wasn't highlighted. What was highlighted was that particular genes, so the pharmacodynamic side of things, 
whether the gene was associated with good uh, uh, treatment response, um, that that didn't typically survive meta-analysis. And so that was the focus, but I think that confuses providers. So these are professional uh, organizations, associations that are sending this message that that PGX is not helpful, but um, it completely kind of takes a focus away from from the pharmacokinetic side, which we know is important. We know it does play a role in in the dosing of medication and choosing which medication um, or knowing which medication may cause side effects. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it, it really also just starts at that higher level of the societies, the medical societies, the medical associations, mm-hmm. um, educating their constituents on uh, kind of the true value of these tests. Mm-hmm. Um, so th- there's that part. Then there's the part of, okay, well, this is a lab test. So um, educating the providers on how do you interpret the results? Um, mm-hmm. You know, what are the liabilities of ordering a test and not knowing how to interpret it, not knowing how to incorporate that in your treatment or modifying your treatment? Mm-hmm. So, all of these things, though, are downstream of the general guidelines of these societies, right? So, if something is not going to be part of their practice guidelines, um, anyone can kind of come up to the provider, to that clinician, and say, hey, that's not in the practice parameter. You're, you're practicing outside the clinical guideline, which mm-hmm. Oftentimes we do because we know it's just a guideline. However, mm-hmm. you know, subconsciously that has an effect. So I think we need to start from that level. Right. Okay. Well, that's 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 interesting. Um, and you mentioned their dosing. I mean, that's that's a very complex area too, right? I mean, there are. I'm assuming there are guidelines, and there's, well, I mean, there are guidelines, but of course, depending on on the provider or depending on drug, there are different regimens that there's not necessarily a great deal of harmonization there. So does that become a problem for you? Well, whether you titrate up or titrate down, you know, how, how do you, when you, when you look at dosing, and then I suppose you have to look at um, the polypharms, you know, what, are, what other drugs are these patients taking? So that, that's a really complex area to get right, isn't it? And is that, is there a little bit of trial and error there still at the moment? Absolutely. So I see kids with with autism, for example, which may be sensitive to medication. I have mm-hmm. geriatric patients. Um, in general, in in these subpopulations, we always say you want to start medic you want to start medications by going um, starting low and going slow. And that's uh-huh. actually true. Yeah. I would say for most people, anyway, you don't have to be part of this special subpopulation to to um, benefit from that approach. Now the issue is when you are debilitated because of depression, anxiety, or whatever other condition, you know, starting low and going slow, I mean, that's, that's kind of hard to accept sometimes, especially when, you know, you have medications like the antidepressants that don't really start kicking in until four to eight weeks from the moment you reach the therapeutic level. So it could be more than eight weeks, in other words. So in those cases, having PGX either reassure you that sure, you know, you can start at a, at a full dose because there's no expected um, uh, side effects based on, based on the CYP genes. Mm-hmm. Um, or, you know, knowing that maybe this person is a slow metabolizer and, and is likely to have more side effects. That knowledge is, ex- is extremely important so that we don't waste time, you know, mm-hmm. in context, like putting things in context. Um, a patient who is, who is suicidal, 
you know, I don't want to wait eight weeks to find out that I could have gotten, gotten faster, you know, or, you know, go eight weeks to find out that the side effects are, you know, not going to go away because they're a poor metabolizer. So I think it's, you know, the timing and the getting any variable answer that's going to inform us on, on where to start in terms of dosing, how quickly to titrate up, what might be our max dose is super valuable. Then you mm -hmm. have the geriatric patients that have multiple medications where they're using similar uh, CYP genes. Um, and it becomes very difficult to determine the drug-drug interactions. And so mm -hmm. having this information on how the body is metabolizing those medications becomes very important to really minimize uh, polypharmacy adverse outcomes. Mm. And how do you monitor, um, how do you do the mo the patient monitoring side of that remotely? How, how do you keep um, track of, you know, assuming that the patient is adhering and taking all of their medications? How is that? How do you assess that? So yeah, at every visit, I always ask my patients about their compliance with medication mm -hmm. um, and then if they're having medication side effects. So, and then I will go down the list of the typical side effects for those particular medications um, that they're taking. So mm. this part of just my standard um, questions at, at every visit. Okay, fine. All right. And did you not have the, I, I do remember reading somewhere, you you did have a story about a particular 16 year old girl, I think, or a patient that you had you treated, which was, a, which was a great case in point um, for one of the first cases that led you to sort of really adopt PGX. I wonder maybe if you could talk to that. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I was mentioning, you know, I, I had a patient with uh, um, mood mood disorders and suicidality, had tried several medication options. You know, I, I, the parents were feeling desperate. A patient, you know, herself was feeling desperate. And I started feeling desperate because, yeah. you know, we're, we're trying everything and there doesn't seem to be a response. Um, and it's becoming critical. We're trying to avoid a hospitalization and kind of the the traumatizing effect that can have sometimes as a teen. Um, and we eventually ended up getting PGX and the results showed that, uh, you know, one of the medications uh, was likely going to have more side effects. Mm -hmm. It it showed us what the dosing um, could be for another medication. And we just started making changes a lot faster Mm -hmm. Um, and so that really allowed her to come out of her, uh, mood episode mm -hmm. and looking back, you know, it was so tense, you know, seeing a teen in so much distress week after week, not seeing a response, seeing things get worse. It was just so stressful and so heartbreaking that once we got those results and we started seeing, oh, wow, we could have avoided that medication. We could have, you know, cut, you know, cut four weeks. Uh -huh. off of, of this of this process i just said you know i just i can't see myself not recommending this to another family mm, right yeah no that's that's very powerful um and with that i mean i suppose there's a whole spectrum of conditions that you see on a, on a daily basis and, and some very complex um conditions all that have a lot of interplay and similarities and but do you think in your experience thus far using PGX, what, what particular conditions have you seen the most benefit or the most transformational effect, would you say? So I think at baseline, 
um, all the cases that I've used PGX have been helpful in terms of dosing and somewhat of side effect predicting um, just because this is how their bodies are going to metabolize this medication and there's research on that. So that's been very beneficial. And, I, and on top of that, I always tell my patients, you know, this is your genetics. This is your liver genetics. This is how you metabolize medication in mm -hmm. general. This is not just specific to mental health medication. So this information yeah. doesn't change. It, it's, it, it's their genetics It's going to be there forever. And so it's useful for any patient, any encounter they have with another clinician and whenever they're going to get prescribed medication or going to go in for surgery and get anesthetics, it can be dosed according to their genetics. So mm -hmm. that's a baseline benefit to, to all cases where, where I've used PGX. On top of that, I would say the other benefit is the rapport with the patient and allowing the patient to kind of put a name to some, some of the things that they've been experiencing um, mm -hmm. and not feel dismissed. So, you know, I, a lot of the patients I get are referrals from therapists or other psychiatrists or other medical providers, cases that are fairly complex or have been refractory to treatment. And mm -hmm. a lot of these patients are burned out from the process from, you know, mm -hmm. from the whole, you know, all these workups and you know, maybe doctors telling them that it's not what they think it's something else. And yet that medication doesn't work. And so, you know, we get this PGX testing and it tells us, oh, look, like there's, there's a gene here that may explain why mm. you are feeling what you're feeling. And that's incredibly validating for them. Now, if we say, okay, well, but that gene doesn't survive, you know, meta-analysis, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you know, this is science. It changes, you know, with further testing, with further studies, maybe we'll find out that actually that, that particular genetic allele is relevant in, in that particular symptom, you know, that's for the future, but regardless, regardless mm -hmm. at this moment, it helps people better understand themselves. They feel a certain level of comfort. They feel understood by their provider. And that mm -hmm. is incredibly powerful. That is a necessary ingredient in order to have positive effect on, on the, on the person's outcome in terms of treating their condition. Yeah, no, no, that's absolutely right. It's it's no different to. We often talk about these diagnostic odysseys that the rare disease patients have to go through, but it's exactly the same. Also, this little treatment odyssey, where in some cases, as you say, the treatment just stops, people give up, and you can understand completely why people are just exasperated or they feel they're just neglected, and these providers don't care. So, no, I, I completely get that. But um, okay, um, so what about? Um, what about the, the elephant in the room the, the the sort of the perennial the perennial thorn thorny issue around any diagnostic testing discussion always tends to come back to to reimbursement you know will the test get covered and and so maybe i wonder where you could you could talk a little bit to your experiences there because i know you know that that is a very fraught area too and again has very uh, negative impacts on on patient well-being and, and of course more importantly you know the, the 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 cost side because cost is is a huge huge factor here um uh, for, for any patient let alone if we we're even going to talk about you know those in the undeserved communities but maybe you could talk a little bit to that in terms of what your experience has been with with the, the payer side of things perhaps yes so i would say that for the patients that can afford the test. Um, mm -hmm. You know, maybe it's, it's an expensive 
um, option, but you know, it's not going to break the bank per se mm -hmm. in those patients. They usually will go for it, um, without much hesitation because uh -huh. they see the value in taking a little bit of the guesswork out. You know, they don't want to feel like guinea pigs. Um, if it's a parent and they're bringing their child in, they want the best for their children. Sure. And so oftentimes with very little hesitation, once I explain to them what the possible benefits are, um, they will usually opt to, to go ahead and get yeah. PGX testing. For the patients where it's really not affordable, um, you know, then we're looking at systems and reimbursement from um kind of the the state systems or the federal the federal mm -hmm. systems and actually there are some companies that have been working really hard at making these pgx tests available to low-income populations okay. and uh, you know unfortunately at what i've seen there is uh, a hesitation from the actual uh clinic systems of of making this yeah. available to their patients uh partly probably because of questions of security and privacy about where where these data are, are going to be stored how are they going to be used long term um okay. those questions but in mm -hmm. general i think those that can afford it will usually go for it okay but is that with with the sort of more of the undeserved communities which i think i know you you, you work in those areas too right because yes. your clinic reaches a, a broad audience uh, is is that an element of trust then ultimately we have to do better to engender that trust within those communities do you think i think the communities are probably open to the guidance of the clinicians and the clinic systems so mm -hmm. i actually think it's more of a top bottom approach where the clinics are not really offering it uh, because of whatever liabilities they perceive mm -hmm. um so i think if we educate you know the clinic administrators and that trickles down to you know, part of the operations of the clinic, of the of the local healthcare system saying, this is an option. This is something that we're going to make available to our patients. Wow. I think that's the first step. And then after that, of course, you know, we educate the patients on, on what their options are. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so you're clearly an, an evangelist for PGX adoption. And, and, um, and as I said before, there's, there's plenty of peer-to-peer -peer education that can be can be achieved um but what is your sense on how the majority of psychiatrists are responding to pgx testing um i mean i mentioned before do, do you have you had seen any evidence that that pgx is now starting to get rolled out in the educational system or do you still think really somebody like yourself is a real outlier um out there you know trailblazing this field do, do, do you think we're just at the tip of the iceberg or do you have you started to see a groundswell of adoption um, amongst your peers or maybe in other areas as well? I definitely see a, a broader adoption of PGX in the field, but I still think that those of us that are that are ordering it more often are still in the trailblazing phase of, of this whole process. Um, you know, the lots of criticisms that come from the training and in academic institutions where, for example, they'll, they'll say the PGX results the way that they are presented are too minimalistic they use a stoplight system you know red yellow green you know go without any hesitation without any worries and and they're concerned that that is just not realistic in terms of how medicine works and how real life works with treating patients and 
that is true. Uh, but mm -hmm. the solution to that is education is not to throw away the entire the entire technology and, and what it can offer patients. So I think it is the adoption is growing. Um, it could be faster. Um, but still, you know, there's just lots of lots of room for education at all levels of of the medical field. Okay. PGX really lies at the heart of what precision medicine is trying to achieve, delivering the right drug to the right patient at the right time. Um, but beyond that, it speaks to building a, a much more preventative rather than a reactive healthcare model, which effectively is what some would argue we have. We have a sick care um, model rather than the healthcare model. Um, and of course, the the extra ramifications, of course, beyond building a preventive healthcare model is, you know, what tools and technologies like pharmacogenomics can do in terms of mitigating cost, not only cost to the well-being of the patient, but the sort of the broader economic cost, um, the broader societal cost, the, the, all the things that, you know, mental health um, disorders really, you know, they, they inhibit so many things. They can affect not just the patients themselves, they can affect siblings, they can affect parents, they can, they can have a huge impact on, on schooling, on educational attainment, they can have huge impact on work days, you know, days off sick, you know, so, so there's a, pro a productive issue there as well, and, and many, many more ripple effects as well. So this is a huge positive case for, for PGX. How, how much do you see that um, in terms of, you know, your day-to-day -day work, in terms of that, that sort of total cost or that sense of, um, you know, the, 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 the ramifications to society as a whole? And, and you know, do, do you get to, to, to breathe that and see that when you're dealing with patients or is that something that you're just aware of because it just it just makes sense you know if we can keep people healthy and we can keep people motivated and we can we can fix these problems then that's going to lead to a much better and more healthy society i absolutely see this on the individual level so you know with pgx if we're able to get someone feeling better faster um if we're able to avoid side effects then this results in for example kids being able to go back to school, uh, parents then being able to go back to work or work you know, more fully. Um, mm -hmm. For adults, same thing. So, you know, they're able to uh, be a part of their family um, in, in a more meaningful way, contribute mm -hmm. to work in a more productive way. And then, of course, that scales up. You know, every individual makes up the entire society and, and the economy. And so, it has big impacts at a big society level. And then of mm -hmm. course, on the individual level and even financially at the, at that individual level, it does cut, cut back on the number of visits that it, that um, treating a condition requires because you're able to titrate the, the dose more effectively. You're able to reach um, response quicker. Um, mm -hmm. So the interestingly, the studies, um, for example, the uh, prime um, uh, randomized clinical control trial that came out in 2022 said, oh, at 24 months, there's no difference um, in terms of response to treatment, whether PGX was used or not. Mm -hmm. But when you look at week eight and 12, mm. you see much faster responses at those weeks. So what that tells you is, you know, maybe in the long run, you end up finding the medication that works, but in the short term, PGX does lead to medications that give you a faster response to treatment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. All right. I've got you. 
Well, listen, uh, Julio, it's been an absolute pleasure. I wish we'd had longer. It's always the, the case with these conversations. We could we could go on, I'm sure, uh, yes. for another 20 or so minutes. But it's been a real treat and a real pleasure uh, to speak to you uh, today. And um, hopefully we'll we'll be able to do part two of this uh, sometime in the near future. But um, I just, again, want to thank uh, Illumina for the support on this podcast. And um, thank you all out there for listening. And um, uh, we'll be back with another installment very, very soon. But with that, I wish you all a, a very good day. And, and Julio, thanks very much indeed. Thank you very much.